0: I want to talk to you for just a few minutes this evening. Obviously, we've got other activities going on in different parts of the building for the kids and such. We won't keep you long. But we do want to look at... uh, I have something on my heart that I want to share with you. John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. I want you to notice something. The first thing that Jesus said about prayer that, that works, it's based on relationship. It's not based on rules. It's not based on regulations. It's not based on you doing the right thing or being pleasing to God in some special way in your life. It's based on relationship. Jesus said, if you abide in me, well, if we abide in him, then that means we're walking in, in the spirit, not by the flesh. It means we're accepted in the beloved It means we recognize God as our Father just like Jesus recognized him as his. If you abide in me, but now notice the next criterion, and my words abide in you. Folks, without a doubt, you judge this for yourself, but I'm totally convinced, absolutely convinced, that most of the church world is trying to get answers to prayer just based on relationships just based on being a child of God, just based on God being their father. But they're falling short in the part where the word, the criteria of the word abiding in us. Notice you've got to have an equal relationship with your father as you do with his word. It's not a 70-30 thing. It's an equal relationship. The same if pertains to both. The same criteria, therefore, extends to both characteristics. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Now, if if we took that apart a little bit and thought about it or thought it through, we could identify from the word that every one of us that are saved abide in him. See, it doesn't mean if you're living a holy life. It means if you know that you're in the family of God. And if that was the only criteria that there was, if that was the only requirement, everybody, every believer everywhere would always get what they asked for. Well, we know that once we're in Christ, we can't get out of Christ. Now, there's one exception over in Hebrews chapter 6, and I really don't like to refer to it, to be honest with you, because so many times people focus on the negative. But the steps... That Hebrews chapter 6 talks about that someone would have to follow through and understand and experience the things that are written over in Hebrews chapter 6. Most Christians, to be perfectly honest with you, most Christians never mature enough to the point where they can get out of Christ. I mean, now who would want to? But Paul, assuming he's the author of the book of Hebrews, Paul saw fit by the Holy Ghost to identify the one instance, the one situation where somebody could lose their salvation but it's an extreme case it's an extremely extreme case the Holy Ghost was faithful to show us what it is but it's a progression thing it's something that would have to take place and and, uh, occur over many years it's not something that somebody's just going to stumble and fall and mess up and now they're out that can't happen in other words, our relationship with God in Christ is secure. But that's not the only criteria for answered prayer. Every Christian would have a successful prayer life if that was all there was to it. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Notice it doesn't even say you'll, you'll pray according to the will of God. Now I'm not suggesting anybody should pray against or, or contrary to the will of God. But Jesus emphasizes you can have what you want. He emphasizes that a life in Christ centered on the Word of God produces answers to prayer according to your will. And notice in verse 8 that it brings God glory when that's the way it works. Herein, by asking what you will and, and receiving, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now I want you to look with me to the Old Testament counterpart for this verse, and that's in Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. We'll start in verse 25. Verse 26 is the one we want to get to, but let's start in verse 25. God speaking first person, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Now notice verse 26, put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Notice he's talking about because we are forgiven, because our sins have been blotted out, because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's the relationship that God has created for us by dealing with sin once and for all. He redeemed us. That means he removed all sin from us. He made us a new spirit. Then he put his spirit on the inside of us. But then the next thing he says, based on that relationship or following that relationship, notice verse 26. He says, put me in remembrance. Now, put him in remembrance of what? Put him in remembrance of his word. Notice he said, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Plead together means God talks with you and you talk back to him. Pleading together means you make your case before heaven. Now, again, this is based on relationship, folks. God wants his children. He wants you and me. He wants all of us to have a relationship with, uh, with him so that we know where we stand. This idea or concept that so many Christians have where they attempt to sneak into the presence of God And very humbly, very meekly ask for some dear small thing that won't make a whole lot of difference in their life whether they get it or not. But make sure that they don't go too far. Make sure they're not asking for too much. That's not the relationship God's describing that he wants with you. He's saying because you are in Christ, because now you are my son or you're my child, I'm your father. Put me in remembrance. Put me in remembrance. Remind God of what he said. And I don't think we have to remind God of what he said because he forgets. But it's a part of the word abiding in you. It's you letting him know, along with the devil, who's listening to your prayers. You're declaring what you know to be true from God's word. You're declaring what you want based on God's promises. And folks, God's promises are pretty much the sky's the limit. There's not some narrow lane here that God will allow you to have certain things within that lane. And everything outside of that, oh, don't even bother about that. So much of the church world is operating in timidity when it comes to God. That's not what God wants. Now, obviously, we're all there when we're babies, baby Christians. But we're supposed to grow up. We're supposed to grow up and take over the family business. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you have a working knowledge of what the Word says belongs to you and what the Word says God will do for you. Put me in remembrance. Remind me of what I've said. So many times people take the position, people that don't listen to the teaching don't really know what we're saying, but form an opinions out of ignorance. So many times people take the position that to speak God's word back to him or to make a claim according to his word is somehow disrespectful, but that's exactly what God wants. When he says, "Come, let us plead together," he's talking about both of us presenting our sides. We present our side to Him, He presents His side to us. Now, His word usually is the presentation of His side. The word usually covers our case. Nine times out of ten, the Bible is going to give us, Scripture is going to identify for us what God wills and what God wants and what God wants us to have. But there are those few things. In life, that we come up on that are personal things, direction, plan of God for our life type things. And even if we can't find scripture, God will plead his case together with us on that. He'll show us what he wants us to do. I remember Brother Hagen talking about a situation many years ago. He was, um, well, he'd been in the ministry 10 or 15 years, and he said God started dealing with him about going to be a missionary. I, I think it was in Africa, if I remember correctly. And he just he just flat said, I don't want to do that. And so whenever he'd get in the presence of God, this would come up before him. He'd have an inkling, he'd have a, an inward witness about going to Africa to be a missionary. And this went on for several weeks, maybe a couple of months. And finally, finally, after this thing witnessing with his heart over and over and over again. Finally, he gave in and said, okay, Lord, if you want me to go be a missionary in Africa, I'll do that. And the Lord spoke back to him and said, I don't want you to be a missionary in Africa. I want you to be willing to be. So a lot of things God deals with us about aren't because that's what he wants us to do, but he's trying to get our heart in the right place so that we'll be willing to do whatever he leads us to do. Well, that's part of relationship. See, folks, if you can't trust God with your future, you can't trust God with anything. And it's hard sometimes to trust God where your future is concerned, where bringing to pass certain things that you've claimed in the word. We'd like to dictate what we have and when we have it. I don't know about you, but I'd like to claim my healing in every instance for the rest of my days here on the earth and have the results within 30 seconds. I'm sure I could get a lot of people to sign on with that. But that's not always the way it works. Seldom is it the way that it works. So we've got to commit our lives to God in every area. We've got to be willing to follow his plan and his purpose in every area. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we've got to be willing to accept sickness or disease in our bodies because that might be the will of God. Well, the Bible's real clear on that. God's not the author of sickness and disease. If he used sickness and disease, he'd have to go to the devil to get it. And God and the devil are not co laborers. There's no sickness in heaven. God didn't create any sickness here in the earth. That was the result of sin entering the world and spiritual death taking over mankind. But there again, that becomes a part of our understanding. By reading and studying and meditating in the Word of God. But He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be willing. So He said, Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. You plead your case with Him, and He'll plead His case with you. And then notice how this is supposed to come, uh, how it's supposed to end, what the result of this is. He said, Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. After you put Him in remembrance of His Word, after He pleads His case with you, and you plead your case with Him. The end result is that we come to a place where we can declare, not wonder about, but declare, use our authority with an understanding of God's will and our position with him and his word, and then we make a declaration that justifies us, that proclaims our righteousness, which is the the relationship, the foundation of the relationship that all this is based on anyway. So God is literally saying, talk it over with me. Put me in remembrance of my word. Talk it over with me. We'll work things out. Now I want you to turn with me uh, to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I want to give you four examples of prayer or uh, people at prayer and the results that came about from those prayers. I'm going to start in verse 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 1. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat saying, there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria and behold there in some place, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And said, here's his prayer. Notice where his prayer starts in verse 6. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And rulest thou not over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Now, folks, i got to tell you, that sounds like Jehoshaphat is talking pretty plain with God. Now, I'm sure you know, generally at least, the end result of this prayer. We know how things turned out. It turns out for a great victory for Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. That's when the, ten, the 12 tribes of Israel are divided Ten and a half make the northern kingdom that's called Israel and then one and a half of the tribes make up the southern kingdom called Judah. So we know how this turns out. We know that lightning doesn't fall from the sky and burn up Jehoshaphat for being rude to, to God. When God said put us in remembrance or put me in remembrance, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. So the first thing Jehoshaphat does is he reminds God of who he says he is who they believe him to be because of his word, because of the things that they've done, the things that God's done for them on their behalf. So he says, are you not God in heaven? And in your hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Are you not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? He's talking about when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land. Weren't you the one that defeated our enemies then? Well, of course, he knows that he is. Jehoshaphat knows who God is and what God's done. God knows what he's done for his people. And they dwelt therein. After they took the promised land, they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, if when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand for our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help that's the deal we made with you God and now behold the children of Moab and Ammon and Mount Seir whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade he's still throwing it back at God only reason these people are around now is because you wouldn't let us invade their territories before and now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt but turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession. Now, folks, I, in my opinion, this phrase is where the whole thing hangs on. Behold, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which you have given us to inherit. They're saying the promised land belongs to you, God. You've given it to us to dwell therein, but this is yours. Well, folks, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament is types and shadows. It's given to us as types and shadows so that we could understand the things that we have in Christ. Because of that, just like the crossing of the Red Sea symbolizes the believers coming into the kingdom of God, coming out of the world, leaving the the world behind in the bondage of Egypt, and coming into the kingdom of God through the new birth, Paul writes it this way to the Corinthians. He says they were baptized unto Moses in the Red Sea. Well, if deliverance from Egypt is typified or symbolized by the crossing of the Red Sea, then what's the promised land symbolized? What's going into the promised land symbolized? A lot of people want to think it's heaven. A lot of people want to believe and do believe that the uh, crossing of the Jordan River over into the promised land is the equivalent or the type of the believers, the church, entering into heaven. But folks, that can't be right. There's no enemies to fight in heaven, there's no battles to win. Well, if Canaan land, the promised land, is not a type of heaven, what is it a type of? It's a type of the blessings of the New Testament believers now. It's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's a type of healing, it's a type of all the things that we know are benefits of redemption. It's where we occupy this earth Until Jesus returns that's what, the, that's what Canaan land symbolizes Of the taking the promised land It's you taking your rights and privileges You t- maintaining and taking hold of your rights and privileges Because of what Jesus did Now folks I know it sounds this way And I, I wish I could figure out a different way to say it It sounds like We've put the relationship with God and the blessings of of, uh, Jesus' redemption for us. We've made them a legal matter. And that's not what God wants. He doesn't want it just to be a legal issue, but it is a legal matter. God said, because of what Jesus did as our substitute, that everything He suffered, every part of the price that He suffered as our, our substitute or in our place, is so that we may not have to do it ourselves. He took stripes upon his back so that you don't have to be sick. He was chastised for our peace so that we don't have to be poor or impoverished. Those are things Jesus maintained. Those are things he obtained. And so I know that sometimes we talk about these things and it's easy to to boil it down to a a ritual. I do this, God does does that. And it's certainly intended and meant to be more than that. But there is a legal side of this. There is a legal side. The Bible talks a lot about the fact that Jesus had to pay every bit of the price and that God could not raise him back up until that price was paid. Well, that's the legal side then, isn't it? God couldn't just cut a corner and say, well, we'll just let Jesus go sit by the fires of hell for a few minutes. Then we'll raise him up and call that redemption. He couldn't do that. God had to do it in a way that he was just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. So there is a legal side to this. That's not the only side there is. But God doesn't have any problem whatsoever with us standing up for what the Bible says is ours and refusing to have less than what the Bible says because he's not the one withholding. When we refuse to have sickness because Jesus paid the price, that's us standing up to the devil, not to God. That's us using our authority on the earth, which was the whole purpose for God creating man. That's us using our authority and saying we won't have it that way. Jesus paid the price according to the will of God so that we don't have to have it that way, so I refuse to have it. See, that's the kind of relationship God wants with us. God wants a relationship with us as our heavenly father so that we know who he is. And we're schooled and skilled in the word of God to the degree that we can stand up and make declarations. This is how it's going to be because of what God's already done. Behold, I say how they reward us. Back to verse 11 to come to cast us out of thy possession which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? Are you not going to do something about this, God? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Now you can clearly see that Jehoshaphat has had no intention of being rude or arrogant before his father, before the God of Israel. He's simply saying, these are reasons why we have a right to come before you. You said you'd do something about it. Well, now's the time. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. I love the fact that they taught their kids to pray this way. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. Came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, and he said, "Hearken, ye all, Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you: Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude; for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle." Set yourselves, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head uh, with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Now the next part of it talks about what happens the next morning. But let me ask you a question. What would have happened if Judah hadn't sought the Lord? We can clearly see what God wants. We can clearly see what God's will is. But nothing happens before they seek Him. Nothing happens before they call upon the name of the Lord in the, the At the doorway of the tabernacle like God said they should. Nothing happened until they took action. I wonder how many Christians are suffering defeat because they never thought to ask God to help them. Or if they did ask but they didn't ask because the word abides with them. Or maybe they didn't know what the word said about their situation. I'm amazed at the number of people that come up when it comes to healing particularly. People who come to healing school. And they'll want me to pray for them. I'm not talking about people in the church. I'm talking about people from outside the church. They come in, may not even make it for a full service. But they want me to pray for them. And so I'll ask them a question. Well, what are you believing? And sometimes they'll answer by saying that they know of God's healing mercy upon some other person or someplace sometime earlier in their life or whatever. But rarely, rarely, extremely rarely. Will somebody come in from the outside and start telling me what the Bible says? Answer the question, what are you believing for with the Scripture? Very, very seldom. In all the years we've been pastoring, I could count the number of times on one hand and have fingers to spare. The Bible says in Psalm 107 verse 20, the Bible says God sent his word and healed him. And delivered us from our destructions well then how can we expect to receive healing the healing that we so desperately want and, and I'm talking about critical cases I'm talking about situations where people are desperate they're on their last leg if God think he find help from God in some way or another there's no hope for them. but how can we expect to receive the word if we reject the word that or the method that God said that healing is received. He sent his word and healed them. Well then we better find out what the word says about our situation, shouldn't we? Thank God these people knew. Well, next morning rose around. They rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before, meaning in front of the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy, mercy endures forever. Now you can well understand this thinking. God said, You don't have to fight. So give the army a day off, put the singers out front. You can see how that's an act of faith. They're not putting the the army out front and sending scouting parties up ahead. God said you wouldn't have to fight in this battle. He said he'd deliver the enemies of Israel or Judah into their hands. So they put the singers out front. Folks, when we believe that God has really won the battle, we put the singers out front too. And a lot of times the reason people won't put the singers out front they won't praise God for the answers because they really don't believe the answer has come. They really don't believe it's theirs by faith. But Jehoshaphat did. So he put the singers out front and commanded them to sing the song. They began to sing into praise. I like how it ties in with the, the sequence of events. And when they began to sing into praise. And when they began to sing into praise. The Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked into the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. Think about what that means. That means the last two guys fighting had to kill each other at the same time. There's not one left. There's nobody left. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off of themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. Now that's a victory. And it came about because they sought the Lord. What if they hadn't? What if Jehoshaphat had been so overcome with emotion and fear and dread that he hadn't turned to the Lord? And folks, notice the answer became theirs as a result of the word of the Lord, the Spirit of God speaking through the prophet. Thank God he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Let's look at another one. Turn with me over to uh, Acts chapter 16. I'll start reading in verse 6. This is Paul and uh, uh, Silas on their missionary journey. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they assayed, that means they attempted to go in Bithynia, into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how he forbade them or suffered them not to go. But he made clear to them some way or another, and and since the Bible doesn't tell us anything about some spectacular means of uh, uh, direction, then I have to assume that it means that he led them the same way that he leads all of us uh, through the primary way of, of giving us direction and guidance, and that was by the inward witness. Now the fact that they wanted to go into Phrygia, means that they've got a plan. It tells us how they had a plan of where they were going to go and what they were going to do next. And I assume that plan is similar to everything other, everything uh, every other um, that it follows the same steps that they went in other places. Paul's uh, primary plan in ministry is he'd go to the big cities. You could well understand why he'd do that because big cities are easier for people to get around in. Big cities are the ones that are going to have the best chance of having synagogues which is where he would always start and because of his education which was the same as the high priests themselves he'd go into these synagogues in these large cities and people would automatically recognize that he was skilled in the the old testament the law and the prophets and so he would reason with them tells us over and over again he'd go into the synagogues on the sabbath day and he'd reason with them about what the law and the prophets had to say about the Messiah. And then after a period of time, in one, case, in one place it was after three months, but after a period of time, the Lord would lead him to talk about Jesus being the Messiah. That usually ended his synagogue ministry. Heard what he had to say that would follow him out of the synagogue too. So I assume that's the same ministry plan he's going to follow here in these places. Or at least that he's attempting to follow. But he, can, he wants to go into Phrygia. Or Phrygia. And the Holy Ghost forbids him to go. Don't know how. Don't know what he did to forbid him. But Paul got the message. So then they move to another place. He's still going to follow his same ministry plan until God tells him no. So he wants to go into Bithynia. And in Mysia. But the Holy Ghost says, no, don't go there either. And again, since it doesn't tell us of some spectacular guidance, I have to assume that means the the inward witness. The inward witness caused him not to go, not to follow his plan, plan or whatever route he had picked out. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Why didn't God just tell him before he ever started the missionary journey, I want you to go to Galatia, then I want you to go to Philippi, then I want you to go from there to Ephesus? Why didn't he just tell him? that's the way we'd like it to be a lot of times we want to know the whole thing the end from the beginning but that's not usually the way God works he wants us to be sensitive to his leading at a moment's notice and Paul doesn't seem to be bothered by that Paul seems to understand he comes up with a plan and unless the Holy Ghost redirects him He's going to follow that plan. Well, here's the Holy Ghost redirected him twice. So now they've been told what direction that they can't go again. The spirit suffered them not. So they passing by Mysia came down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over here to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia Assuredly gathering, listen to this, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So just like Paul communicated the, the, the two places that the Holy Ghost told them that they couldn't go, now he tells them about the vision he had in the night. And the rest of the crowd, the rest of the company that's traveling with Paul says, well, that's got to be it then. We don't know if they had a witness of the Holy Ghost not to go into Bithynia. We don't know if the Holy Ghost forbid them. They had the same witness about being forbidden to go into uh, the first place, Phrygia. We don't know about that. It may be that these guys are just trusting Paul and what Paul says that the Lord shows him. So they all joined together and say, well, then this is where we're going to go. Let's go to Macedonia. That's got to be what this vision was about. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to someplace, and the next day to Neapolis. And from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, in a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. Notice that they had to go out of their way. It wasn't close. It wasn't convenient for where, from where they already were. They've got to backtrack, and they do. Following what they believe is the leading of God. Verse thirteen. And on the Sabbath we went out by the river, by the city, by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted there. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought him, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her master's much gain by soothsaying. Notice it doesn't say anything about the synagogue. Here's a place where Paul changed the plan, apparently because there was no synagogue in the city. Which means Philippi is not a major city. It's the chief city of that region. But it's not a big place like he would normally want to go. Folks, we get in so many habits about what we think we should do or how we go about things. And many times those habits keep us from looking to the Lord for direction. God sometimes wants us to do things different just to remind us that he's God and we're not. So it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by so saying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. I don't know how many is, but it's more than a few. But she does this day after day after day after day after day for many days. But Paul, being grieved, not the first day, but after many days, Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Why didn't Paul do that on the first day? He, ha- he didn't have a direction or an unction of the Holy Ghost to do it. See, Paul couldn't just go around discriminately or indiscriminately casting out devils any more than you and I can. A lot of people like to look at the fact that Jesus said we had power and authority over the devil and they think that we can exercise that authority in anybody's life that we want to. Well, that won't work. You certainly have authority in your life and you certainly have authority over the work of the devil and people who come to you for help. But in this situation, Paul's just grieved by the Holy Ghost and takes action on his own. He's got an unction. He's empowered by the Holy Ghost to do something about it, and he does. And so it, the evil spirit left this little girl within the hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, by the way, notice it doesn't say instantly. It says within the hour. It may have been that it didn't look like anything had happened whatsoever. It may be that Paul looked like he had failed when he attempted to break the power of the devil over this little girl. But before an hour had passed, she's free. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, And the magistrates went off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the socks. In other words, the jailer realizes these guys are some big criminals. We better go to extra security measures to make sure they stay in. Verse 25, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was an earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awaking out of sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Folks, get the picture here. Paul and Silas at midnight began to sing and uh, began to pray and sing praises unto God. And the other prisoners heard them. The other prisoners are hearing their prayer. They're hearing the songs that they're singing. Now, if you were in prison under these circumstances, what would you be praying for? I'd be praying to get out. I'd be praying along the lines of, God, you sent us here. In one of the most spectacular ways that Paul ever received direction and this is what we get. We're beaten for helping the little girl. Paul's not even following the little girl. He doesn't even go to the little girl. She follows him. The implication is if she'd stayed put in a certain place, she and Paul might never have interacted at all. And folks, I want you to see another part of this. In the vision that Paul had from the man of Mas- with the man of Macedonia, He never finds this guy. He goes to Macedonia because he sees in a vision a man of Macedonia saying, Come over here and help us, and never finds the guy. He finds the women at the river and the little girl telling fortunes, but never finds the guy in the vision. So Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Whatever prisoners heard them pray and sing, don't move a peg when the doors fly open. Or stocks or whatever, bound in any way whatsoever, those things fall off and nobody moves. Nobody moves. Nobody makes a run for it. Now the jailer assumes that that's exactly what has happened. He sees the doors open thinking, oh gosh, now everybody's gone. He makes some kind of commotion so that Paul realizes that he's about to kill himself and fall on his sword. And Paul says, don't worry, we're all here. Now, what are those other prisoners thinking? Something holds them in place. And the only thing that makes sense to explain it, as far as I'm concerned, is that they heard them pray. They heard them sing praises to God about being free. They heard what they prayed and heard what they praised God about. And so they recognized without a shadow of a doubt that this thing that has happened, this earthquake, so-called earthquake that took place, is a direct response and a result of their prayers. So nobody moves. Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we're all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why would the jailer talk to him about salvation? The jailer doesn't even know who these guys are. The jailer wasn't out in the street when they were taken hold of and beaten, brought before the magistrates and such. He didn't know any of that kind of stuff. In fact, that's why the Bible tells us that he received a charge, a special charge. Make sure these guys are secure. Nobody goes into the jail and says, these guys have been convicted of preaching salvation. Make sure they don't get away. But something about their demeanor, something about the way they behaved themselves in prison, caused the jailer, To come in and talk about salvation. Paul lived his Christian life out in, front of it, out in front of everybody. He was bold about who he was and who he served. He knew that he was there at the direction of the Lord. He knew he was operating according to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. And folks, that had to make an impact on his prayer life. That had to have made an impact on the things he asked for and the way he asked them. Here's an eyewitness account of two men that abide in Jesus, and the Word of God abides in them. So they ask what they will, and it's done. And they were confident enough that it would be done, that their prayer would be answered that they start singing praises unto God before it happens. There's just something about knowing that you're in the will of God that changes everything about your prayer life. John said it this way. He said, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. These people, in both instances, we won't take time to look at the other two, But in both instances, both cases, these people know that they're doing what God has instructed them to do. And they pray boldly. They remind God of who he is. They remind God that they're his servants. They remind God of the victory that he said belongs to them, which is exactly what they receive. The jailer comes and says, what must I do to be saved? And they answered very simply and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and do all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway, meaning all of his family. And when he had brought them into his house, he sat meat before them. He's not even trying to keep them in jail anymore. He took them home. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. This is the character of Paul. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now they want us to leave privately or quietly nay verily but let them come themselves and fetch us out i want you to see the boldness that comes from knowing you're walking with god folks the early church had a boldness about them because they saw the power of god in operation you make one of the other situations that i was going to look at we won't take time i'm already out of time But it's where the guy at the beautiful gate of the temple was healed in Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John were brought before the the council. The same council that put Jesus to death. Some of the people are changed. Some of the people are, are replaced by others. But it's the same council. And they, hearing about Jesus, hearing about the power in the name of Jesus that made the man strong, healed him from his crippling paralysis they beat uh, Peter and John and commanded them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Well, that's the very thing that Jesus told them to do. And they say so. They say whether we should obey man or God, you decide for yourself. We can only do the things that we've been told to do by our Lord. So they go to their own company and they magnify God. They talk about God being the one that created the earth the land, the sea, and all the creatures therein who said in the Old Testament, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? They talk about how God handpicked Pilate to bring about the plan of God through the crucifixion of Jesus. And then they said, now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And what they prayed for is so strong. They said, Grant unto your servants, Lord, that with all boldness we may speak your word. They're asking for boldness. They know it's going to get them in trouble. They know it's exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees and the council told them to do or told them not to do. But they pray for boldness. Grant unto your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. What kind of boldness are they talking about? The kind that comes from seeing the healing power of God flow. Grant unto your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Folks, there's a place that God wants us to dwell. A place of strength, a place of confidence, a place of maturity that can be gained and obtained only By seeing the power of God in demonstration. Now folks, God knows that. The Holy Ghost is the one that inspires these guys to pray it. They're seeing it for themselves. God knows that. So what's God's plan? What's his purpose for the church? He wants you and me to see the same thing too so that we can have that same level of boldness. He's not withholding. He's trying to get us in position where he can use us. He wants us to be able to stand up to the rulers of the nations and kings in our day and say God is the creator of the universe. God is the all-powerful one. God is the one that can do what you can't do, no matter how much power you have from the government. God is the all-sufficient one. This is the kind of prayer.